Once more, welcome everyone to worship this morning. Welcome to all of you in the overflow. Welcome to those of you in Perry, Oklahoma. Pastor Brian, we love you so much. God bless you. We are delighted to be a part, small part of the big thing God is doing in Oklahoma. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're still in the message series entitled Passionate Questions. We are uh, walking the long walk to Calvary with Christ. And along the way, we're paying close attention to the questions that are asked. Now, some of the questions that are asked are questions that people ask of Jesus. And some of the questions that are asked are questions that Jesus asks of people. Now, I remind you, I have, I'm a very simple man. I have basically one rule in biblical interpretation, but it is this. Whenever Jesus asks a question... It's not because there's something he doesn't know. It's never because there's something he doesn't know. When Jesus asks a question, it's usually because there's something we don't know. And this is one of those questions this morning that Jesus asks. And he asks it at a place called Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 is where I will be. I ask you to open your Bible and turn there with me. There's an old saying that goes, uh, every battle is won or lost before it is fought. Every battle is won or lost before it is fought. Now, if that is true, then you need to understand that the battle that Christ fights at Calvary is actually probably decided at Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press. You're going to find that Gethsemane is really less of a garden as you think of it. It's more of an orchard. It's an orchard of olive trees. This is a place where olives are harvested and olives are crushed. In an olive press, the word Gethsemane means olive press. The olives are crushed and the oil is extracted. And so understand, Gethsemane is a place of crushing. So before Jesus' body is crushed at Calvary, his soul will be crushed at Gethsemane. Uh, This is the story uh, for this morning. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Uh, Read the word of God with me. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. Now pay attention, pay attention to Jesus' anguish. He told them, my soul is, say the word, crushed. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. He he prayed. Now stop right there. In Jesus' day, a a typical Jewish man in prayer was not going to fall on the ground. A typical posture for a Jewish man at prayer would be standing with their hands and their heads raised to heaven. So understand, Jesus is at this point praying like no Jewish man would typically pray. He falls on the ground. Jesus went a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup, underline the word cup, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh, the body is weak. And Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping. For they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say to him. 
when he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Take your seats. This is a story that I'm sure everybody knows. If you've been in church, if you've read anything of the stories of Jesus, Gethsemane is just one of the stories, one of the paintings perhaps, a picture you can call to mind. This is a famous and popular story in Scripture. Even so, I'm very interested as I research, I find that this isn't necessarily a scripture or a story that gets preached very often. We read it at Easter. It always makes an appearance in in the movies at Easter time. But this is not necessarily a story that is preached very often. And that's because it's not easy to preach. This is a story that is very, very, it's deep. It's very deep and complicated. Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh, God in the flesh who came down from heaven for the sake of men and the sake of our salvation. Jesus came down and he is God in the flesh. So when we begin to talk about Jesus talking to the Father, Jesus uh, talking to the Father, and, and Jesus is being abandoned or forsaken by the Father, honestly, that becomes very deep and, and too deep for me. I really can't understand God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, how the three are one and how these three interrelate. I have a hard time explaining that, and, and I'm not going to be able to explain it to you today. That's deep. But the passage is also dark. To see Jesus in his humanity, God in the flesh, but, but the flesh is real. And he is all human, all man, and all God at the same time. But at Gethsemane, you really begin to see the extent of his humanity. He's flesh and blood, just like you and me. It's difficult to start to see him suffer as he suffers here. It's difficult to see the Son of God crushed. As I've preached it to you in the last 15 years, I I think several times I've got some things wrong. I'll I'll confess to you, I'm learning. One of the things that I believe I've probably always gotten wrong about this scripture is that as I've preached it, and honestly, as a lot of people have preached it, we give the impression that that Jesus on on this last night of his life, Jesus in, in this dark moment as his death is coming and he sees it coming, he knows what's coming, We've always sort of treated Gethsemane as if Jesus wants to get away and be alone with his friends. And that's the way the story is usually preached, that Jesus gathers his disciples and he brings the, the eight a certain distance and then he brings the three closest to him, deeper with him in the garden to share his turmoil. And I'm telling you, that's not this story. Even if that's the way I've preached it before, that's not this story. Jesus is not going to the garden in order to be with his friends. Jesus is not going into the garden in order to be with his friends. Jesus goes to Gethsemane in order to be with his father. Do you understand? And that's very different. Jesus goes into Gethsemane in order to be with his father. Father. 
Notice when Jesus begins his prayer, verse 36. It's very common to talk about this in Jesus' prayer life. Jesus had a different way of referring to God. Again, Jesus would have been raised a Jew and would have done everything in a Jewish context. And for the most part, Jesus conforms to the God that is revealed in the Old Testament, God is Father. But in Jesus' prayer, he veers off and he does something nobody else ever did. Jesus gives honestly to God a brand new name. In his prayer life, Jesus has a title, a word for God that no Jewish man had ever uttered. It has no place in the Old Testament and no place in Jewish prayer tradition. Jesus is the first and only one to use this word for God. And what is that word? Abba. Abba. Now, in our English translations, we very typically just go ahead and translate that father. But Jesus uses a different word for father. He uses the word Abba. Abba. That word means father, of course, but, but it's, it's the word more like daddy. Now, when I was a kid, I always called my father daddy. I called him daddy from, from the first time I said daddy. And I called him daddy all the way up to a certain point in my life, probably when I was about, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that. At that point, I started calling him dad. Yeah. Why did I make that switch? Why did I stop calling the man daddy and start calling him dad or pop or old man? Why the switch? Can you tell me anybody? Because that word daddy sounds what? It sounds childish. It's just really, really hard to have some swag on and be all cool and say, daddy. It doesn't come out that way. Daddy is a childish word. Daddy is the word for father when you're a baby, when you're dependent, when you're small. The word Abba means daddy. Jesus calls his father daddy. Nobody else would have done that. What you call somebody says everything about the relationship. Church I grew up in was very, very small, and honestly, a whole lot of it was my family. I don't just mean my mom and dad, my sister and myself, we were there, but I had cousins in that church, I had aunt, I had family that that came, and it was a small church, so honestly, most of the kids in Sunday school were me and my cousins and my sister. We were all related, and so, of course, there were other people who went to the church, but again, the vast majority of the kids, we were all cousins and related, and our grandmother, my grandma, went to the church. And and so you got to get this picture. Here's a a small church and there's one woman in the church and almost every kid in the church calls her grandma. So what do you think happens? All the other kids in church start calling my grandma, grandma. I don't like this. As a kid, I did not like that. Now, why would I not like that? I mean, it's perfectly natural for me to call the woman grandma But when just random kids at church, kids I didn't even know, kids not related to me, when kids just come up and start calling my grandma, grandma, at that point I have a problem. You see, I considered that we had a unique relationship with the woman we call grandma. That word meant something to us. One day, it's the primary Sunday school class, so I must be, what, four or five primaries. I'm sitting at a table. My grandma is my teacher. There's a room full of kids, half of them my cousins, but some of them not. 
I'm sitting here with the crayon in my hand. I said, Grandma, I need to use the bathroom. And then this kid, this random kid, I think it's the second time I've seen him in my life. He says, Grandma, I need to go to the bathroom too. Well, I've had enough of this. So I look at him and say, she is not your grandma. He looked back at me and said, well, she ain't your grandma either. I said, she is too, my grandma. Grandma, ain't you my grandma? Grandma, tell him, ain't you my grandma? And my grandma at this point, bless her heart, she said, boys, I can be everybody's grandma. That's her idea. Because I have an idea. How about everybody else just calling Miss Virgie? That's what I'm thinking. I can be everybody's grandma. Huh. If everybody calls her grandma, then all of a sudden, I don't have a unique relationship with her. What you call a person says something about the relationship. And Jesus calls God the Father, Abba, calls him Daddy. Gethsemane is a moment when Jesus is going to be alone with his father. This is truly the darkest, one of the darkest moments of Jesus' whole life. And he knows what's coming. Understand, Jesus is not a victim of the Jews and not a victim of the Romans. Jesus chooses what is coming. And this is the moment when that choice is, is once and for all settled. It's this moment where Jesus with his father once and for all, decides for the cross. It's his choice. He knows it's coming, and he chooses it. But it is agony for Christ. And you need to understand that although Jesus had disciples in life, that these guys weren't exactly the kinds of friends that you and I would, would hope for. Jesus already knows. If you look back to the passage immediately preceding this one, he's already said that all the disciples are going to abandon him. He knows that. Jesus knows that they are not going to stick up for him. He's already told Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. I think that's probably why Jesus goes back and wakes him up three times. Jesus has a way of constantly teaching and constantly reminding. You've got to understand Jesus knows what is coming. He knows the agony of Gethsemane. He also knows the agony of the cross. And in that moment, Jesus wants to share that agony. He needs love. He certainly needs fellowship. But it is the fellowship of his father that he craves. It is his father that he goes to be with. It is not the disciples. It is not the disciples. Now, I want you to understand something. I want something to be perfectly plain to you in your life. In your life, you will always need people. I hope I preach that enough and you understand that. God unites us as his body. We're supposed to need each other and we're supposed to love each other. And we are always supposed to try to be there with one another in the darkest of days. That's what we do. That's what friends do. That's what Christian family does. But at the very same time, if you've lived very long by now, you've learned that there are dark, dark valleys that you will have to pass through. And honestly, nobody's going to go with you. There are valleys in your life. There are nights so dark and nobody can go with you. They just can't. I remember on the very worst day of my life, worst day of my life, I stood in my living room and I wept and I cried out. And at that point, as much as I love all of you, I didn't call out for any of you because you could not do for me what I needed. 
I know you love me. I know you would have come. But in that moment, the worst day of my life, I stood there alone and I cried out to God. Because honestly, it is God that I needed. God was the only one who could understand and share my sorrow. Only the Lord. And this is one of those moments in Jesus's life when honestly, nobody can go with him. He has disciples. They're human. They're prone to letting him down. They're prone to sleep through his sorrow. But at this point, understand, Jesus isn't there to be with his disciples. He's not looking to them for support. He's not necessarily expecting them to be there for him because Jesus is there for the father with the father. He goes to be with his father. You and I read this story and we think, oh, wow, I know how Jesus feels. That's our tendency. I've been there. I've seen nights so dark that nobody could stay awake with me. I've been there. I've been in those moments so lonesome. I've been in those moments so heavy hearted. I know how Jesus feels. And I understand that tendency to to relate to Jesus in, in this story, in this scripture. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I want to make something else perfectly clear about this scripture. You have never and you will never experience anything like what Jesus experiences at Gethsemane. You listening to me? You have never and you will never experience anything like what Jesus experiences at Gethsemane. This is different. This is radically different. This is not an ordinary human being having a difficult night. It's not even an ordinary human being anticipating his coming death. It's much more than that. You've got to understand How much more than that we're talking. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now begin to let this sink in. Jesus has a unique relationship with the father. They are one. They are truly one. While you and I are are, are born and and raised in sin and, and we first know separation from God before we come to know what it is to be in fellowship with God through Christ, we know that separation. Jesus has never for a moment, never for a moment known separation from the Father. He's never experienced that, never known that. Not only this, you've got to understand that Jesus in his life from all eternity, Jesus has never known sin. He's never known a moment's sin. That he was tempted on earth just like you and I are tempted. We know that, but he never sinned. That means in Jesus' entire life from all eternity, he has never known guilt. He's never known what it is to feel ashamed or or to know shame. He has never known what it is to be forsaken or abandoned by God. He has never known any of these things. So please understand, when Jesus falls on his face at Gethsemane, this place of crushing, please understand, when he prays, Father, Abba, if there be any way possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup, he says, We're not just talking about the cup of physical suffering. I've seen the Mel Gibson movie too. 
I know how horrible crucifixion must be in terms of a way to die. I can't even imagine the bloodiness. I don't even want to see the movie again necessarily. I get it. I understand the physical agony. But you've got to understand, when Jesus says, if there be any way possible, let this cup pass from me, I don't think he's talking about the cup of physical suffering. I don't think it's the beating. I don't think it's the hanging. I don't think it's the nails. I don't think it's the spear. I don't think it's the crown of thorns that crushes his soul. It's what he calls this cup. What is the cup? Read your Old Testament. The cup always has to do with judgment. God's wrath. God's anger. If there be any way possible, Daddy... I don't want to taste the cup of your anger. So why would he? Why would he have to? He is the beloved and only begotten son of the father. Why would he ever have to taste the cup of God's judgment? Why would the only begotten ever become the forsaken one, why? Why would he who has known no sin ever have to become sin itself? But that's what the scripture says. The scripture says that's what happens. And if that is the battle that is fought at Calvary, then this is the battle that is decided at Gethsemane. This is the moment when Jesus says, Father, if there be any way possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but but what you will. Do you understand? He's the son of God. He is the holiness of God. He has known no sin, but suddenly at Gethsemane, the moment has come. And he who has known no sin is about to become sin itself. For what purpose? The purpose of 2 Corinthians says, he who has known no sin becomes sin itself so that we might become right with God. This isn't about him. It's not his cup. That's our cup. He has done nothing to deserve God's condemnation. Not one time, not any sin, no sin in his life. He is drinking the cup of sin for you and for me. Do you understand that? That's our cup. It is we who deserve God's condemnation, not him. It is we who deserve God's forsakenness, not him. He is taking that cup for us, from us. That's our cup. He who has known no sin becomes sin itself. And it begins to happen here at Gethsemane. His soul is crushed. This man, God in the flesh, the only begotten beloved son of the father, this one who has known no sin suddenly takes on The sins of the world, the sins of the world, one man, the sins of the world. That means all of the sin for every person who's ever lived, ever was alive and ever will live. The sins of the whole world placed on one man and it crushes him. It 
crushes him. He who knew no sin takes on the guilt and shame of every child molester. Do you understand that? takes on the guilt and shame of every rapist, every murderer, every liar, every thief. He who knew no sin takes it all upon his own back. You have never and you will never experience what Jesus experienced at Gethsemane. He who knew no sin became sin itself so that we might become right with God. And the disciples slept. Slept. Jesus returns three times and he continues to say, are you asleep? Can you not watch and pray with me one hour? And honestly, I think it's a literal hour. I don't think it means hour in a general way. I think this is an hours long night. Hours go by. He's asking them to watch and pray, but they sleep. Understand a few things. Remember that Jesus had no home. Literally a homeless prophet. He had no house, no home. The disciples left everything to follow. They don't have a house. Now, there are occasions when they're taken into the home of, of, of someone else, one of their friends, perhaps Mary Martha Lazarus, we know. But for the most part, they don't have a house. So they probably sleep outdoors every night. They probably sleep outdoors every night. And also understand, this is probably not the first time they've been to Gethsemane. They probably go to this grove of trees outside the city and spend the night frequently. Judas knows exactly where to find Jesus this night. It sounds like this is a place where they would frequently spend the night. So it's very, very likely that these disciples crawl up by the same rocks and underneath the same trees night after night. This is probably where they sleep. It's probably a place where they rest. It's not uncommon for them to spend the night at the place called Gethsemane. But, but, but this night is different. And Jesus has been telling them that it's different. They've had the Last Supper where he said, this is my body broken. This is my blood shed for you. I'm not going to eat or drink again until I eat in the kingdom of heaven. He's been telling them this. The, 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 they're going to strike the, the, the master and everyone will scatter, Jesus says. He's already told Peter, you'll deny me three times before morning comes. Jesus has been telling them how different this night is. And this night as they go to Gethsemane, he says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. And then Jesus leaves him. He goes, he falls on his face. He prays these agonizing, crushing prayers, returns to the disciples. Why does he return? He returns and finds the disciples asleep. It's Peter that he singles out. Peter said, I'll never deny you. Jesus says, three times you will. Peter says, no, not me, not once. Three times he comes back and says, Peter, are you sleeping? What's that about? Again, let's rethink this story. Because I'm afraid every time I've ever read this story, I've simply thought that this is one more example of how the disciples are letting Jesus down. That Jesus returns and finds him sleeping and then he asks him, please stay awake and pray for me. Please pray for me. But that's not this story. Do you see that? It's not this story. 
Jesus doesn't come back because he feels let down by his friends. Jesus keeps returning to the disciples because he is concerned for them. In his agony, in his crushing praying, he continues to come back to the disciples to care for them. He is taking care of them. He knows that they are in danger. Do you understand that? They are in danger. An army is coming with spears. He is concerned for them. And not one time does Jesus tell his disciples to stay awake and pray for me. He never says, pray for me. What does he tell them to pray about? You need to watch and you need to stay awake and you need to pray for yourselves. You need to pray for yourselves. You need to watch and pray because an hour of temptation is coming for you. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Temptation, he calls it temptation. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word temptation. You usually think about being tempted to sin and and that's exactly what temptation is. But the word here is, is heavier. When Jesus says temptation here, it's not just gonna be a temptation to say a bad word or, or do something inappropriate. The temptation for these men that is coming even before the morning comes, the temptation will be to deny that they ever knew him. The temptation will be to lose all faith. The temptation will be to leave him. When Jesus says, are you sleeping? He's not concerned for himself. It's not that they should stay awake and pray for him. They have to watch and pray for themselves. They are in real danger. The spirit is willing, Jesus says, but the flesh is weak. I can see that in this room right now. Some of you spent it all at the ball game last night and you can barely keep your eyes open. It's okay, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I don't consider it my job to keep you awake. Stay awake, Jesus says. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. When I've read that verse in the past, I've often thought that Jesus is talking about like two parts of me. Like I have this willing spirit, this part of me that always has good intentions, this side of me that that wants to do right, but but always will just sort of fall short. I thought that the willing spirit was mine, but then I've got this flesh that's weak. I, I can want to do some things, but I never end up doing those things because in the end I'm so sinful. That's not what Jesus is saying. When he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, he's not talking about two parts of each disciple. He's not talking about two parts of you. It's not that you have good intentions, but in the end, you still fall short. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is much more serious than that and much more pointedly to the truth about you and me. That willing spirit that Jesus talks about, that's not your spirit. You don't have it in you. The willing spirit is from God. It is God's willing spirit and you need that willing spirit because you are a sinner. Your flesh is weak. You don't have it in you to stay awake. Do you understand? You don't have it in you to pray as you should. You don't have it in you to make it through the coming darkness of this night. You don't have it in you. The spirit is willing. God's spirit is willing. 
but you are weak flesh and that's why you must pray. That's why you must stay awake. That's why you have to stay so very spiritually wakeful, so very spiritually ready. It's why you have to stay in contact with the Father because you don't have a willing spirit. You don't have a powerful spirit. You only have weak flesh. sleeping? Jesus says, are you sleeping? Can you not stay awake one hour? Spirit is willing. Flesh is weak. But never mind. Look, here's my betrayer. And the army approaches. They've slept through the night. Now it's too late. Grandma, tell him you're my grandma, I said. Would you just tell him you're my grandma? Say you're my grandma. Grandma, ain't you my grandma? My crazy grandma said, I can be grandma to everybody. It's similar to what God the Father has said. Jesus had a unique relationship with the Father, no doubt. But in all eternity, that that Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, united in perfect love and holiness. The plan from the beginning was not just to keep that love inside between God the Father, God the Son. The plan from the very beginning was for God to be the Father of the whole world. Sometimes we talk about how all the world, everybody's God's children, and that's not technically correct. Scripture says that all those who believed upon his name, they have been given the right to be called the children of God. You're not born a child of God, not at all. You have to be adopted, brought into this family, and this is God's plan. God's plan to be the father of everyone. But there was a price to that. You and I adopted into God's great family. You and I, our sins put away and forgiven. You and I given the offer of salvation. There was a price to pay for that. And don't ever forget the price for that. It was his crushing, his Crushing. In all of time, in all of eternity, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is saved, except this one. It's unthinkable. But that night when Jesus fell on his face at Gethsemane, And said, Father, if it be possible, save me. He did not, did not receive salvation. Instead, what he received was the salvation of the whole world. The salvation of the world. We are forgiven. He was forsaken. We are accepted. He was condemned. The bitter cup that Jesus drank at Gethsemane was not his cup. It was yours. And it was mine. And he drank it 
to the very last bitter drop. Pray with me. Scripture says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished onto us that we might be called the children of God. Oh God, how you have loved us. Oh Christ, how you were crushed for us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that everyone in the sound of my voice, that every person, Lord, in this house today will understand the love that drew salvation's plan, the grace that brought it down to man, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. But Lord, let us not forget the great battle fought at Calvary was won in Gethsemane when Jesus prayed to his father and accepted the plan for the world. Lord Jesus, today I pray that anyone in this house who's never accepted the plan for their own life, your forgiveness, Lord, your acceptance in exchange for our guilt and our shame, Lord Jesus, I pray that there will be those in this house today, those in the sound of my voice, Lord, who will hear this message of salvation, this free gift of forgiveness, this exchange where Jesus takes our place. I pray, Lord, that everyone who hears this message today will accept the gift of salvation and grace and forgiveness. I pray that everyone in this house, everyone in the sound of my voice, will hear the name of Jesus and understand that because of Jesus, God, you have become the father of everyone who would come to you in Jesus' name and call you daddy. Oh God, we thank you that we can call you father. Because Jesus was crushed. Oh Lord Jesus, be present in this house. Present to save, present to convict, present to comfort every hurting soul. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.